Um, if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? If you're opening a pew Bible, that's 1775, I think, is the page number. 1777. Yeah. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. And when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his soul saved on the day of, our, of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are, for Christ the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And if you've got, um, just turn over to page 1796. I want to I read for you how that turns out. Because we do have the other bit of that story. And so they confront this guy, and they do throw him out of the church for a while. And then this is what the apostle writes down. And notice he'll pick up the grief language. He said in the last passage, shouldn't you have been filled with grief? And, and listen to how he talks here. This is chapter 2, verse 5, starting verse 5 on 1796. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Um, so this is the second week on judgment, and I realize that I'm going to be, um, as I always seem to, trying to cram in too much. So um, I talked with John in relationship to the study guide that we give out, and then to Lisa, and, and we just, what we decided to do is I'm actually going to put a blog out every day on all the stuff I'm not cramming in. And so if you're interested in all that stuff that didn't get crammed in, you can go there and um, read that. And uh, I don't think that's going to help here, but it'll help maybe. Um, but there's two things that came up last week that I think we should review. The first is, is last week was the when you need to back off week. When um, our disposition towards judgment is you need to step back and back off and let it be. And either you need to tolerate what's going on or you actually need to withhold judgment because you don't really know what's happening. And the example in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, was leadership. And what the apostle was saying was, listen, there's two major issues in relationship to how good leadership is. Inner motives and future fruit, neither of which you know. So how can you be so sure about who's good and who's bad? You can have your opinions, but are they really objective judgments that you can parade around? You're really just creating division, aren't you? And the answer is, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. And so there are some things you need to back off on. But the, one of the main points in that passage was Paul saying, listen, he said, I, um, it's a very small thing if you judge me. And he said, listen, I don't even really judge myself because even if my conscience is clean, I might, I might not be innocent because I don't, what, ma- what matters is how, what God thinks of me, what God's judgment is. So other people's judgment doesn't really matter all that much. Um, my judgment of other people doesn't matter all that much, and my judgment of me doesn't matter all that much. All of those judgments only matter to the extent to which they parallel God's judgment. And our, at our house, one of the things my wife does to encourage our children to have feelings is that we do this thing at dinner, the highlight, low light thing. You know what I'm talking about? What was the best part of your day? What was the worst, worst part of your day? Um, so I can say, why didn't you do better and suck it up? And um, 
I, I don't really do that. I'm just kidding. Um, but, the, but last Wednesday, for me, was like um, a real convergence of criticism because I had a, bun- I had a few different meetings. And I think everybody w- thought they were just giving me a, a nice piece of advice, and that's really what was happening. But I just got it from a lot of different people all in one day. So that Lexi referred to that as Daddy's No Good, Very Bad Wednesday. And... Um, but, you know, that was, it's a great, that's a great example of, like, what we were talking about last week. Because if you, you can, you can't, I mean, what do you do, right? Um, especially when it's conflicting, because I got a bunch of emails that said, Fat, don't change a thing, everything's, I love that you do this, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so what do you do? I mean, you can just, you just mope and get mad at people, and, but that passage last week has the answer. It's, you take all that criticism, and you sit down, and you say, Lord, um, what of this is, is parallel with your judgment of me? And even if you wouldn't say it this way, what is in here that I can learn from and that, I can, that, you, that you can draw me closer to you and, and to what you want me to be? And the reason that's important, here's the reason that's important, because here's what it does. If you believe it's God's judgment that counts, then it becomes God's judgment that guides. And here's what I mean by that. If criticism comes in, um, it, whenever you get criticized, for the most part, you get to know somebody better. Right? You might get to know yourself a little better, but you're going to get to know somebody else better because if somebody criticizes you and it makes you mad, you're going to get to know them better because all of the focus of your mental faculties is going to be on them. And how dare they and all of the things in them that make them an illegitimate contributor to your personal growth. And you're going to get to know them better because you're going to use all that God has given you to get to know something on them. And you're going to have that argument in the shower, right, where you tell them off and it goes very well, right? And the, but, or, but here's the other thing. If you, go, if you go the other way with this and you say, God, what of this really is your judgment? Is, is what you would want to tell me? Then what happens? You realize that you may not know all that well. And that drives you to get to know somebody. But not somebody who criticizes you negatively. It will drive you to get to know God better. It will drive you to the scriptures. It will drive you to people more f- further along spiritually than you. It will drive you to mentors. It will drive you to prayer. It will drive you, it will drive you to things that will cause you to get to know God better rather than to negatively get to know your criticizer better. And that simple idea that it's God's judgment that counts in everything, that's it, really is the building block for everything we as Christians believe about judgment, discernment, and confrontation. And if you're thinking, Nick, then why wasn't the sermon last week shorter, then I don't know what to tell you. So if last week was when you need to back off, this week is when you can't back off, right? You heard the passage, right? This is when you can't back off. What do you do when sin sticks and starts spreading? Right? Um, and I think, here, here's how I want to frame this. I think that we have to accept this fact, and this is fairly contrary to what our culture thinks, and I talked about that last time, um, and that is that God's people should be confronters and restorers like Jesus. You just go ahead and read the Bible, and the Jesus in the Bible, read any of the Gospels, you're going to find a Jesus who is both a confronter and a restorer. If you read and you're only looking for restore, you'll find a bunch of it. And if you look and you're only looking for confront, you'll find a bunch of it. And if all you're looking for is confirmation of your, of your own proclivities, then you'll think Jesus is a lot like you, one or the other. But if you just read and focus on what Jesus is and how, how he does both of these things, he is constantly confronting and restoring and trying to do both at the same time, lots of times. In fact, there, there's a great place in Matthew 19 where he gives the second most vicious attack anywhere in the Bible, and that is three verses from, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's the same, it's the exact same people at the exact same time. You're going to hell, and it's going to be hotter than Sodom and Gomorrah, and why don't you come to me? You're so heavy laden. You're so broken. Just come to me. It's right, right together. Same verses. Because that's the, kind of, that's the kind of person Jesus is. That's what Jesus is like. He is a confronter, and he is a restorer, and he has willed that his people in this, this organism he's created called the church to be like that. Right? Now, it's very easy to think, it's, it's easy to fall into this idea that um, we should be a confronting people or we should be a tolerant people. Um, 
There's a, a fairly famous Bible passage because of a song in the 60s in a Twilight Zone episode in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. Um, let me just read a little bit of this for you. Um, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build. And then let's look at the last part there, verse 7, where the little 7 is. A time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, um, not all of Ecclesiastes as a wisdom book is meant to be taken just straight face value because there's sort of this wisdom progression in it. But, progression in it. but this passage is meant to be taken at face value. This means what it means, right, exactly what it says. And the point is, that a honorable, truthful, godly, emotionally healthy life has contour. It doesn't do anything all the time. Um, that that a, a, a full human being isn't always mamby-pamby loving, nurturing, like, oh, but they are sometimes. And, and, a, and a, a fully functioning human being isn't always like sword in hand, machine gun, reloading, t- taking care of business all the time. And we're not always approving, but not always disapproving. But that wisdom, that real life, real wisdom, is based in knowing when to be which. And so it's very easy to play the fool and just say, um, you know, we're God's people, we're religious and self-righteous, we're always going to judge. And it's very easy to say, we're liberal-minded and we're open and we don't want to hurt people by rejecting them. We're always going to tolerate. Both of those are ridiculously foolish Positions that just deny everything that is, should be obvious about human beings and human beings gathered together in societies. There is a time and a season for everything. And listen, it, that, it's not just foolish to be one or the other. Um, a, a, both a fool and a wise person can know that sometimes you should judge and confront and discern, and other times you, sh- you shouldn't confront and judge. Fool, a, a fool, you don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed to know that, do you? The difference between somebody who's wise and spiritually mature and somebody who is not is to know when and how to do it. It's no big deal if you hypothetically know that sometimes you should confront, sometimes you shouldn't. It's, it's time to talk to Bill. I have to. Or I need to watch this ride out a little longer. It's that seasonability of when it's time to do what. And that is at the heart of what we need to figure out in relationship to this. Now, before I get into that a little bit deeper, I want to go through this passage and talk about a few of these things that I think could get you hung up. Because there's a lot of stuff in that passage that kind of makes you go like this, right? Like, the, like some of you just heard, he's, what with his, with who? And you didn't hear any of the rest of the passage, right? So, um, so a man has his father's wife. Okay, this is probably his stepmother that he is no kidding shacked up with. And maybe coming to church with nobody really, you can't really tell from the context. Um, and that is forbidden in Scripture on three different levels. It's considered incest in Scripture, which is kind of funny because most people think that in the ancient world they had really loose incest laws and now we have really tight ones because we're so enlightened. But that's not true. Actually, 3,500 years ago, the Bible had stricter incest laws than we actually believe in today. Because we would look at this and we would say, that's weird, but it isn't wrong because we only believe in genetic incest. But you see, ancient cultures believed that this, dis- this still destroys families and destroys culture and wrecks everything and destroys the hierarchy of families and all those kinds of things that are meant to function properly. And so you're not supposed to be with somebody your dad was with. Doesn't matter if you're related to him or not. You see, it's kind of funny how we think of ourselves as so advanced and enlightened, but really um, we are oblivious to some of the most basic rules of human culture because we want to believe as human beings we can be anything we want to be. And if we could just be anything we want to be, including a toaster, then you can't try to fit anybody into anything because human nature is totally fluid. The fact is human nature is almost nothing fluid about human nature. Human nature is much more prescribed and constricted. And so all these rules that the ancients just assumed, which are still facts— we tend to believe that through technology and open-mindedness and education, we can get around them, and what we find is we can't. And it's the people with the least resources that pay the worst. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then he says, you're proud. And he doesn't say, you really should have been embarrassed. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, the emotion that you should have isn't pride and isn't embarrassment. It's not self-righteous or 
not interested in righteousness. It's grief. You should, you should be grieving over this because you should care about that person and you should have a clear enough sense of the gospel to know that they're self-destructing. They're re-entering the atmosphere at the wrong angle. They are going to burn up. And if something isn't done, these, these guys are going down. And do you not even care? You see, the, the idea isn't, oh, let's just let it go. Or, oh, let's, you know, these people really embarrassed us. Listen, people in this church are going to embarrass us, okay? They're going to do stuff, and it's going to come out in the community. But it's going to be a mistake. It's not going to be like they're committed to it. They're not going to repent. No, they're going to be like, yep, I, I did that. I definitely did that. Ugh, not my finest hour. I'm, I'm really sorry. And we're just going to have to go, oh, well, there it is. <laughs> and that's it. They'll embarrass us. That's, you, don't, you don't judge somebody. You don't, you don't even have to confront somebody when they embarrass us because they're embarrassed and we got embarrassed and that's just part of being a family. You get to bear the embarrassment of your ridiculously foolish family members. It's just a fact. Um, and if you don't feel embarrassed sometimes, you're not part of the family, probably. Now, he says, though, he says, listen, when you're assembled together, meaning, he says, when I'll, I'll be with you in spirit, and the power of Jesus is there, and you're assembled together. So he's talking about the gathered local church, right? He said, you need to throw this guy out. Now, up High Point Church is what's called a congregational church. What that means is that if you say, okay, the church belongs to Jesus, but who has the authority from Jesus? Do, the, do priests and bishops or pastors or elders, does that authority go to the elders and pastor and then to the people of the church? Or does it come to the people of the church and then to the elders and the pastor? And this passage is one of the strongest in the New Testament that pushes towards congregationalism. That is that it comes to the congregation and then it is given to the pastor. But it's not given to the pastor the way we delegate it in a democracy to representatives. It's not that way. Because the pastor is not a representative of the people. He's a representative of Jesus. Accountable to the people, but not a representative of the people. That's different than in government. But you still have to ask the question, where, where is the center of authority? Therefore, where must discipline come from if it must come? And in this passage, it appears to be both discipline towards somebody and the restoration towards somebody was meant to come from the congregation. The Christians together were supposed to do it. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that's the only argument in the Bible about how churches should be run. But this is one of the strongest ones for the way we do it. Now, the passage where it says, hand this man over to Satan, um, that does not mean that Satan has a safety deposit box in Corinth and you stuff the guy in it. And it, it means when he goes out, he leaves the community of assurance. And he goes out and he should feel, by leaving the church, he should feel like a separation from the people of God and he should feel in that a separation from God. And he should feel like he's being cast back out into the clutches of the thing he was in before. And it should terrify him. And he should, and we, sh we should not enable on, to any degree, the full extent of the pain that his sin could cause him. He needs to feel that, was what he's saying. And because if that happens, it may destroy his life. It really might. But it may turn him around. It may be enough pain. It may be enough separation. It may be enough felt lostness that he really wakes up and turns around. And the great thing about having a second Corinthians is that we know that it did. Right? Now, this brings up another thing that people don't like to talk about a lot, and that is, that is church membership. One of the things that, I grew up in a don't join anything generation, and I went to churches, I even would give and volunteer. I mean, I remember being in a church where I was, I was tithing, and I was volunteering every other week teaching kindergartens, which I'm terrible at. But I just wanted to do something that felt like the most painful thing possible. And so I did it, and, um, but I wasn't, I never became a member. Never became a member of that church. Um, because I just, you know, what's the big deal? Well, it's not in the Bible. The church membership isn't in the Bible, right? Well, the, yeah, the words aren't in the Bible. Neither is the word Trinity. Neither, I mean, there's a bunch of things that we totally believe in. But here's, the, here's why it's important. How do you know who's in and who's out? How do you know who you can talk to this way and who you can't? Right? I mean, when you get further on this passage, it makes very clear that Paul says, you don't have any business judging the world. The authority and right to do this kind of confronting only exists within the gathered church. That's it. 
where you've got two people who have both said that they belong to Jesus, and he's the king, well then, they're in that kingdom, and that confrontation can happen. Now, biblically, it's baptism. But we don't, not everybody got baptized here, right? We live in a mobile society, not an immobile society. So you could come and baptize, but I don't really necessarily know you've gotten to the point where you're part of this family of visible believers and that I have the right and you have the right, right? But, and, and don't we want people to be able to come just and listen, right? I mean, it's, it's, it wouldn't be right to be like, well, if you walk through those doors, I can say whatever I want, right? We don't want that. We want people to come and sit here. As far as I'm concerned, some people have to sit here a couple years listening, weighing. Their life situations will change. There's not enough pain yet. They're, they're not convinced. They, they're here. You know, they may even do stuff. They may even volunteer, but they're not members. That's okay. That's okay. Um, but I think it's important that there is a clear delineation between the two. Because if you're not in... You have no right being the gathered congregation that makes those authoritative choices, right? Hence, who votes for elders? Members, right? But who also am I going to confront directly and who am I going to kind of like beat around the bush and at some point maybe get into that, but mostly just encourage? Well, it's the difference between a consumer and a member. Are you in the foyer or are you in the kitchen? The kitchen is more fun. The jokes are funnier. It's not as polite. There's, there's more stuff to do. There's more community. You have access to the fridge and all that. That's, the, that's where the family gathers. And the four years where people hang up coats and make polite jokes that aren't really funny, but everybody laughs anyway. And people are just getting to know each other. And it's a wonderful place to get to know each other. And it's all designed just to get to know each other. But nothing of real substance happens there. It's the place where you get to know each other so you can get to a place of substance in sort of the living room. And then eventually, where, you know where all my good friends and I go when they come to my house and we stay at my house? We gather in the kitchen. Everybody does. But people I don't know very well, I take them and I take them into the den and I sit them down in the living room and I bring things to them from the kitchen hospitably because they're not, they're not part of that camaraderie yet. And, and I don't talk to them like my friends who come right into the kitchen. Right? Or for guys in the basement. Okay? And so that's why, though you can't find the words church membership in the Bible, it is very important to have a fully functioning church. And that's why even though you might not really want to be a church member, you might want the freedom and the looseness of just kind of being around, but not really. Um, listen, if you're, if you're still figuring it out, you shouldn't feel pressure to be a member. But if you're, a, if you're a Christian and you know you're supposed to be in a local church and this is your only lead, you know, you should be becoming a member. And then the last thing about yeast, I'll talk about this quickly is, um, that might sound kind of odd, but you see, the Jewish people had this celebration called Passover that's in Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16, where there was this lamb that was sacrificed, and that became the symbol for the sacrificial lamb that made them their own people. And they were supposed to eat nasty bread that had no yeast in it. The thing I, I've celebrated Passover a number of times. I have Jewish in-laws, and so I celebrate Passover with them a good bit. And the, the, the meals are, are great, they're, I mean, they cook, it's just stuffed mushrooms, and there's brisket, and there's, I mean, there is, there is good stuff at Jewish Passover meals, let me just tell you. But there's one thing that you can't make good, okay? You can't make it good. It is unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is terrible. Now, I'll tell you, some Jewish people, they eat some good leavened bread all the rest of the year. They know how to do some baking, okay? But on that week, you can't have it. All you have is that crackery, all you can do is put salt on it. It's terrible. But here's, here's the thing. It's a totally different kind of bread, and it's meant to say God's salvation comes quickly. Right? That's why they couldn't put leaven in it, because God said, my salvation is coming. You have this meal, and you're going to eat it. And by the time you finish eating it, the Pharaoh is going to send you out. So have your coat on, have your keys ready, be ready to have your shoes on, and eat quickly, and you're not going to have time to let bread rise. Because you're going to be out of here. And so unleavened bread marks that, but it marks them becoming their own people, a separate people to God. And so after the Passover lamb is sacrificed, this is a symbol of their separateness. And so who is Jesus in the Bible? Right? He's the Passover lamb sacrifice that makes this new people of God. Those new people of God have this feast, Passover. There's this thing in it, the unleavened bread, that is, 
And he said, listen, there's a way in which that exists morally and spiritually among the people of God. Yeast works through a whole dough. You don't need a lot of yeast to make bread rise, right? It works through pretty easily, and once it's in there, you can't get it out, and it just grows the bread, which is great if what you want is yummy bread. But if you don't want that, you can't get it out, and you can't help it. You've got to start with a whole new batch. And he said, here's the, the problem with sin is that it's like that. It really does spread. If it sits and it's untouched and nobody does anything and people just wink and smile and they just gossip about it behind people's backs, it just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And this is one of the things in which there's a lot of rhetoric in our culture to intimidate us into believing that's not true. That, that any more, any social more that I want to have, you can't say anything about because it doesn't really affect you. Now listen, in a liberal small L, meaning society where we allow individuals to do what they want to do for the most part, um, it's one thing to say we shouldn't make laws that force people into our social mores. I'm actually very much for that. But it's not on the basis of us kidding ourselves that what you and I do morally doesn't affect what other people do morally. It does. You and I set each other's imagination for what is morally possible and morally expected. We do. It's a fact. And people do take their license to do other things and to loosen up on other things from other people. And in fact, you look at the demographic of churches, it, it all lays down, and people in those churches, they all do the same things. They're, and their hot buttons are all the same issues, but totally different than this church because they gather together and they all, they all take their direction from each other. And so these people are important, interested in poverty and these people are interested in keeping families together and living. And, these people are, and they all take their cues from each other because we do. It is a fundamental fact about human societies that you really can't get away from. And so what he's saying is one of the reasons why in the church, not in the government, but in the church, when everybody says we've signed up for Jesus as king, we know and we believe it, that's a, that's a sub-society. It's the city of God within the city of man and you have to do that there. You have no business judging them, but in here you have to do that. And the more we don't judge out there, the more important it is that we do it well in here. Not mean or not more, but just well. That the confrontation and the comforting functioning toward redemption really is functioning. It's the only way we can live in a culture lovingly with our neighbors where they do whatever the heck they want. But yet we still have some kind of keel in the water that's fixing our moral imaginations in here. Does that make sense? All right, now some of you are, are sitting there and you're thinking, okay, generally speaking, that's not totally crazy, but it's totally not realistic. I mean, we live in a culture, I mean, like, if you even say something, I mean, I don't know if you've been to my office, but you even say something that is, could be taken wrong, you can be fired and sued. I mean, you, you can't do this. Well... Again, I don't think we should let our surrounding culture set our own moral and spiritual imaginations for us. I think we should let God do that. I think that we should attend to the scriptures about what they say and about what Jesus, who Jesus is. And I'll just tell you, um, this does work. When it's, when it's not done self-righteously and judgmentally, but it's just done with a little courage, but with a lot of love. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a church in Seattle called, called Mars Hill Church, and their pastor, Mark Driscoll, wrote a book recently on marriage and sex. And he was on that show with those four cackling women that just talked forever that some people watch. Um, the View, right. And um, so they were talking about that. And th that show got attacked for having Grace and Mark Driscoll on there because th th they, people wrote and they said, their church practices shunning. It's terrible. It's like, it's like Amish people. They just, they shun people. And what they mean is that that church practices church discipline. So if a guy wants to be, you know, is in the church, he wants to be a deacon, and like, and he's, he's sleeping with his girlfriend, they've been dating four years, and he won't, just won't marry her, and he's just enjoying her 20s, somebody's going to have to talk with that guy, and it's not going to be pleasant for him. Right? And there's a lot of things, that, they're just not afraid to do that there, and it's built on this culture that has been really important to Mark and these other guys that have led that church. And, and you know what's happening at that church? You'd be like, well, they probably have like eight people. No, they've grown from eight to about ten to fifteen thousand. I'm not sure they have a pile of campuses now, and 
they're one of the only churches in the country that have that are overrepresented with people in their twenties and thirties, and they have um, and they're not seventy percent women or sixty percent women. Men are flocking to that church because they've never had a spiritual father before that would look them in the eye and tell them exactly how things were, but not to belittle them or to push them back because I'm the man and you're going to have to sit back and I'm the alpha wolf and you're not. It's not like that. It's, I'm going to lift you up to be everything that you can be and I'm not threatened by you. We're all going to be men here together. We're going to fight shoulder to shoulder and here's what you can be and I'm going to make sure that you become that thing and I'm not going to let it go and if I have to confront you, I'm going to confront you and if I have to comfort you, I'm going to comfort you but I'm going to work for the full redemption of your masculinity. You know what else happens when all those men flock there that are being taught and led and fathered that way? Women flock there. In fact, one of the secular newspapers in Seattle put Marcel Church as the number one place to find a husband in Seattle. Because it's one of the only places in Seattle where you can go, and if you meet a man, he is likely to believe that marriage and raising a family is an honorable thing worth doing. Oh, and going to work and not playing video games for 47 hours a week in your mom's basement. If you want a guy that works hard, cares about you and wants to stay married to you, and will actually believe that all that is honorable and what he wants to do is life, the highest percentage chance to find that person is to go to Marshall Church. And it's not because that church is just encouraging. Lots of churches are encouraging. It's because that church has some men with the guts to confront other men and call them up into their God-given masculinity. And they have that culture among the women, too. Um, in my own life, um, before I left Florida, um, there was this couple, and I ran small groups in Florida, and there was this couple that was in small groups, and I'd actually been in India with the wife, and um, they were a great family, married 35 years, grown kids, all that kind of stuff. We would consider them, have considered them pillars of the church. And one day, <clears throat> the husband, he just left. I mean, he just wanted to do something else. And he bought himself a Harley, and um, he uh, started drinking about five times as much as he was, and he just didn't come home, except for when he felt like it. And um, he played a lot of golf, which is not necessarily a sign of depravity, but, but, it, but selfishly, in terms of spending of resources and time and all that kind of thing. Um, and just, just no, there's no authority of Jesus at all in his life. I mean, he just did whatever he felt like doing. Um, and... Uh, you know, his wife came to me and was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. <clears throat> I don't know if I just wait till he kills himself and then I try to get on with it in my life. I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do here. Um, and she said, but I don't believe in divorce. I'd, I think I'd probably kill him before I got divorced. And I was like, well, you shouldn't do that. And um, she said, I know. And so, um, but he was in a small group before this happened and there were five dudes in that group, two of them ex-cops. One of them, like, was the sheriff of Florida for a while. Like, the whole, the whole state. And a, and a couple other guys that were just, they were guys. And they believed in Jesus, and they just weren't going to let this go. And so they would go and meet with this guy, and, and just, they'd just talk to him. And they weren't mean about it. And it was informal. It wasn't formal church discipline. It was informal church discipline. But they would go, and they'd be like, dude, man, just turn from this. You don't have to keep doing this. You don't, you don't have, you can stop. Just, just let it go. Um, and it took about eight months of that. These guys just kept calling. I'm going to go see him again. I'm going to go talk to him again. And, and he would just be like, I, I, know, I know what you're going to say. I know what, you know what I mean? You know how, these, how folks are when they're in that place in their life. And, but, but, but one day, um, I was getting ready for church was about to start, and, and he walked. And somebody had tipped me off with a text message that he was going to show up for church. And um, you could just tell, on look on his face, it was over. He was, he was back. And he got it. And he had gone back home, and, and I, I just got to hug him, you know? Because, because we were in 2 Corinthians 2-4 at that point. And I got to, and the, before I left, he, he, they took us out, he and his wife took me out to a t- dinner just to say, I, I want to thank you for encouraging those guys and for you to just hang in with me. And he, he said, I, I think I'm back. I think that, and I think that we're dealing with the things that really caused me to, blow up besides just my stupidity and sin. But I mean, some of these issues we're, I think we're starting to work on. In this church, High Point Church, there's a couple a couple years ago who got into a business venture with another family that was supposed to be uber Christian, went to church, was like a deacon in his church, and they were going to run this business for the glory of Jesus, and it was going to be awesome. And um, 
things worked out good for a while, and then they realized that the husband was totally living a double life, and he was in like a half million dollars of debt. And so when they signed on to this business, they had fraudulently, on the other person's part, signed on a quarter million dollars of debt. And the whole, the whole purpose, his purpose from, from the beginning, was to cut his debt in half by swindling this family. And um, they, uh, they went and they asked, they were going to the same church as this family, because it was a fairly small town. It was an evangelical free church. And they talked to the associate pastor and they said, you know, I'm just, what do we do? I'm just looking for what, what do we do? And the, to the associate pastor's credit, he said, he said, this, this is a church matter. This is a church matter. Because this is, this is a, a very objective sin in the Bible. It's swindling. And um, this, whatever else this is, it's a church matter. And so they went and talked to him and they did the Matthew 18 thing. Met with him privately, brought in three people, didn't work, brought it before the church, word got out to the whole community that this guy had swindled this other family. But over the course of several months, um, this guy eventually broke spiritually and he also broke in terms of his health. Um, he, had the, he came down with this rare form of thyroid cancer and, he, he, and the guy who, from the church who, who had this happen to him said that he, at that point, he, he had conversations sitting on the guy's porch where he said, the guy who had swindled him said, I've wasted so many years. I've lost so much. I was a double man for all this time. And, and he'd finally, he could tell that this guy had really come back. He'd really changed. And he said he sat in the church one day where this man, totally bald from chemotherapy and radiation, renewed his marriage vows with his wife because of the betrayal. I mean, imagine the betrayal of you making friends with another couple and you becoming close friends with the wife of that couple if you're a woman and then finding out that your husband has torpedoed them for a quarter million dollars. Think about the state of your marriage at that point. But they got to the point where they renewed their vows and they were close and um, and they um, she chose, without one lawyer doing one thing, to pay the debt out of his death benefit. And they're friends to this day in that. And, and at that ceremony, he said that the, the associate pastor came over to him after he'd renewed the vows, and he said, you think, I don't want you to think that you caused all this trouble. He said, everybody has experienced some level of redemption through this. You, them, the whole church, the whole town, because of what happened here. And it's true. I mean, don't let people convince you that any kind of confrontation, any kind of calling things what they are, any kind of loving, redemptive work can't happen. It's a denial of the Bible. It's a denial of the gospel. The gospel is confrontation and redemption. So how do we do it? There's four things I want to go over, and these are the shortest points I've ever preached, I promise. Um, so I'm actually ahead of last hour. And there are this authority, timing, motivation, and practice. Authority, timing, motivation, and practice. Authority, if I love God and others, can I decently not do it? One of the things we need to realize about being depraved sinners is that we tend to judge the things we can't know and we tend to overlook the things that are obvious and objective. That's what we tend to do. The things we really have no business judging, we find those to be more emotionally dramatic and we tend to be more judgmental about them. Speculation, judgmental speculation, we're great at that. But when somebody literally, openly, obviously, and objectively does something that is completely wrong and it's totally obvious, we just back down. We won't say a thing. And um, we need to realize that that's natural. And so if that's not going to be reality, Something has to happen in us where we need to say, I'm going to reject this. I'm going to move towards this. So under authority for confrontation, there's, there's four things that make up the right to talk to somebody, okay? One is, out, is it's ongoing. It's not just a mistake, you know? You don't do church discipline on some girl who gets pregnant and has the baby. You don't, you don't do church discipline on her. It happened. She did the right thing. She sacrificed dramatically to do the right thing afterwards. You need to embrace her, help her, support her, walk with her, right? So on, is it ongoing or is it just a mistake? Two, is it objective? So in, in 4.6 um, of 1 Corinthians, it said, um, this, Paul said, I'm telling you this so you won't go beyond what is written, meaning the things that aren't blatantly written in the Bible, don't be too speculative about them. The converse logic is the stuff that is written in the Bible and is completely obvious 
Trust that. Is it objective? Three, is it unrepentant? Are they not sorry? Um, to put this sort of in cultural context, if you're over 65, think Hitler and villains in John Wayne movies. If you're a baby boomer, think Soviets, any villain in a Clint Eastwood movie, and any parental figure in The Graduate. And if you're under 30, this would be any boy referenced in a Taylor Swift breakup song um, or, or the lyrical first person in anything sung by Kesha, okay? So, um, but then the fourth thing, that, and this is important, okay? The fourth thing is important, and that is they have to be a professing believer, they have to be a professing believer. If they're not a Christian, you got nothing to say. They're, they're living consistent with their view of the world. They're not living in hypocrisy. They, and it just is what it is. Talk about Jesus. But you can't, you can't judge them because they're, you're, what you're judging is the validity of the work of the gospel in their life. When you say, hey, listen, you can't keep doing this. It's because, it's because they're saying... I've believed the gospel. I've trusted in Christ as King and Lord and Savior. I believe the Holy Spirit has come in and regenerated me from the inside out, and I'm living in response to that redemptive work. That's what you're judging. What you're saying is, no, you're not. No, you're not. That produces a certain kind of fruit, and it's not here. And so I'm telling you, it's obvious. What you're claiming has happened has not happened, or you are not cooperating with it. That's very different than just judging somebody because they're acting sinfully. And then you've got to go after somebody in proportionality to this. The biggest mistake people make is to say nothing or to be really mean. But how you go to somebody, how much authority you believe you have and you use should be proportional to how obvious it is and how ongoing it's been and how, how unrepentant they are and all that kind of thing. And so usually when you confront somebody, you've got to ask some questions. Try to figure that out. Okay, the second thing is timing. Um, if there is the ongoing objective un- unrepentant and professing four things, then you've got to discern a little bit about this whole issue of unrepentance. Now, now un- being unrepentant is to have a willful lifestyle and commitment to whatever sin it is. And what's helpful for me is in the ancient church, the early church fathers used three categories for sin. One was called a sin of infirmity. Second was a sin of ignorance, and the third is a sin of presumption. I find that to be really helpful, and I go through them in that order. One, is it a sin of infirmity? That is, do, do they do it out of some kind of sickness? And that, I don't mean sick like, but I mean sick like there's something going on. So if somebody has an addiction, for example, usually the right course of action is not to be like, well, we're going to throw your hind and out of here. Well, okay, you've got to confront them, but they've got an addiction. What are you going to do about the sickness, Right? Or somebody's from a really dysfunctional family. They have these huge blow-ups with their husband or with their wife, and they just belittle them, and they're mean, and they're awful. And then they, afterwards, they realize it, and they apologize, but then they still ha- it happens again. Well, is it habitual? Is it unrepentant? She keeps doing it, or he keeps doing it. Do you throw them out and hand them over to Satan? Or do you, or do you say, okay, sweetie, we need to go see a counselor. Or we, need, we need to do something here because this keeps happening, and I know you don't want it to. I know you don't want it to. So what do we do? It's a sin of infirmity, right? Okay, second is ignorance. That is, think about this. In chapter 6, apparently there are some people who are, there are some men who think it's okay to go to prostitutes even though they believe in Jesus. It was totally accepted in Corinthian culture, and I don't know what their wives were saying about it, but, but these guys apparently thought it was acceptable. And, but Paul didn't say, hey, you need to discipline those guys, right? There's no church, to, he doesn't have a list. He's like, that guy, the one with his stepmom, you need to do something about that one. But why not the people going to the lawsuits in chapter five or six, or the guys going to, pro- why not them? Well, you see, in those cases, he, he tries to teach. Do you see? You get to chapter six, he says, listen, you think that being spiritual is spirit, and that therefore it doesn't matter what happens, what you do with your body. He's like, that's not really true. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, your body becomes this temple that's made sacred, your physical body. So what you do with your physical body spiritually matters. Now do you see why if Jesus inhabits you, and the Holy Spirit inhabits you, and your body is a, a temple made sacred for that, you really can't go to prostitutes. Do you, do you see how that works? You see, he's teaching. He, it's not just a blatant fact, but he believes that they don't understand. They don't get it. And before we rip into people, we need to know the gospel well enough 
that we can try to help them understand something they may not get. And this is where many of us are going to fail because we don't know the gospel very well. And so because we know it's not a sin of infirmity, we can't explain or know the gospel well enough to figure out where they're ignorant. We're going to jump right to a sin of presumption and we're going to give them both barrels. You see? That's one of the reasons why spiritual growth for us is so important. Because for a lot of people, the reason they don't grow is the second reason. They believe some, some ideas about the gospel, but they don't really understand it. It doesn't get internalized, and so it doesn't change them. And so that is where most of our work lies, in ignorance. But then third is presumption. When, but we know it's neither of those other two. Then it's the last one. If it's not out of infirmity, if it's not out of ignorance, it's out of presumption, then it's time. Third is motivation. Why are you doing this? If you get the other two right and you get this one wrong, you're just going to blow things up. You, you should not be asking yourself the question, is God on my side? You should be asking, what would God want me to say and how would God want me to say it? As best as I can figure out. And the, and the ruling emotion should be grief for them. And grief for the effect it will have if it works as yeast into the dough of Jesus' community. And then lastly is practice. If you, you know, if you have legitimate authority, right motivation, good timing, that's not enough. You have to do it right. You have to have proper practice. And I think the best way to try and train yourself about that from Scripture is to read the first verses of Matthew 7 and then Matthew 18. Matthew 7 is, look for it in you first, then go help your brother. Matthew 18 is, private before public. Don't go tell somebody else about it. Go right to that person directly, one-on-one, then two-on-one, and then it escalates to be from private to public based on how obstinate they are. But most of the time, it should be a one-on-one discussion. You go, you talk directly with them, and you don't talk to anybody else. Now, I think one of the struggles that we often have with this kind of thing is to say, you know, if, if, I, Nick, if we did that, if I did that, I'd, I'd be killed. Like, I mean, the level of embarrassment, the level of rejection, the probability of gossip and slander against me, the, what people might do to me, including sue me. I mean, are you kidding? Like, that is not reasonable. To which, the only thing I can say about that is, that story or that list of possibilities ought to sound like a rerun when it comes out of your mouth or out of your brain. Right? It should sound like a rerun to us because that's already happened. There was one who came to confront and to comfort. There was one already who came for redemption for whom that was exactly true. It was, he he was attacked and humiliated and slandered and gossiped about. He was attacked. He was thrown to the legal dogs and he was, he was literally ultimately killed. Not because he encouraged, he was killed because he confronted. And um, all of our salvations rest on whether or not you and I will open ourselves up to the one true confronter, the one who doesn't do it because he's vindictive or insecure or any of those reasons, but only confronts for the right reasons and only confronts out of love and only confronts out of grief and a desire to bring us to himself, Jesus. And listen, there's no way that you can be part of the redemption of confrontation nor receive the redemption of confrontation from extremely imperfect confronters unless and until you open yourself up to the one good confronter, the the one whose only his judgment matters. Remember the first point from last week? Only God's judgment matters. And God's judgment is wrapped up in whether or not you believe in and follow and accept Jesus. And if you haven't done that, I, I would encourage you to do that. It's real easy. God hears everything. You just tell him. And then this, the second bit is that um, I don't think that you, I don't think that we can realistically believe that a church exists in this dimension that cannot do this stuff and be healthy. 
I think the desire to create a church that's only accepting, only positive, only affirming, only ever slapping butts all the time is ever gonna be healthy. I don't think you can do redemption with only comfort. And if, and listen, if that were true, if you could do redemption with only comfort, America's churches would be full, about half of them. About half of them, they could do some comforting. And they're, and they're kind of mean when they confront. But, but there's no shortage of churches selling nothing but comforting. And people don't go to them. They don't care. The thing, we think if we live a life with a little bit of moral courage and guts, that that's going to drive people away. Listen, they're already not coming, okay? They're already not coming. They don't like courageless Christianity any more than they like judgmental Christianity. And so we had better so see the Savior and his image remade in us such that we can be both courageous and loving and comforting to the sacrificial degree that we really look like Jesus in our living and our dying. And I believe if that happens, it has, it has one result, and that result is not division. I believe that result is unity and mutual love and profound spiritual growth and people finding Christ and people being restored and people being loved and people forgiving one another and for, for tallies of resentment to run short and for people to find that there is a health to this community that you really can't find anywhere else. There isn't another place that has it. Outside of a few families. But this only works if we believe that as God's people, we're meant to be confronters and comforters like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that um, you confront us and comfort us, that there's not just one side of that. And we pray that you would make us into the kind of people that live this out in a way that is, that is very humble, not judgmental, but, is, but has a strength to it so that when we, um, when we look around, we see um, people we love with a great affection and that know that we love them, that we would be a people, that we would be a people in a great kitchen working and loving and caring for each other. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.